Matthew chapter 7 today. Matthew chapter 7. The subject is building on the rock. Building on the rock, Matthew's gospel, chapter 7. A familiar parable of our Lord, the parable of the wise man and the foolish man. Now, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him to a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon the house. It fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house. It fell, and great was the fall of it. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Thank you, and you may be seated. So a famous parable. Most of us have sung as children in Sunday school, the wise man built his house upon the rock and the rains came tumbling or came pouring down and the foolish man built his house and so on. So we know the parable. Here's the essence of it. Two men, one wise, one foolish. Both of them built a house. The house represents their life. They were building a life, if you will. And the only thing that differed between the two men and their house-building plans was the foundation. The wise man built his house upon a rock, and the foolish man built his house upon sand. Now, we in South Carolina live close to the coast, and we know if you build your house on sand that in a few minutes' time, it could be eroded and uh, the house would fall. So we can picture that very vividly. So think of the house as being your life that you're building. And the question comes, are you building your life? Are you building it on a rock? Or are you building it upon sand? 2020 has been a year of storms. Storms for the entire country. Storms for our church. Storms, no doubt, for you personally. I don't know what your personal experiences have been this year, but beginning about the 1st of March, we entered what we called the COVID-19 pandemic, coronavirus, a new virus came sweeping into our country from overseas. And we suddenly saw our entire way of life in a form of upheaval. And we got used to things that we'd never thought about before. Our television screens became sort of a scoreboard. And over on the side of it were the number of infections, the number of people who had been infected or who had tested positive, we say, with the virus. And every day we saw it go up and up and up and up and up. And now I think it's above 2 million. I've even stopped noticing it 
over 2 million people in America. About 130,000 people have died. And uh, all the attendant problems that came with that, shutting down the country, shutting down businesses, shutting down really the entire economy. Our whole life has, has changed. Now, the thing is, you see all these statistics, and it's easy to panic. It's easy to become afraid. And, I, and I'm, I'm not an authority and don't want to present myself as an authority on the coronavirus. I certainly am not. I'm not a, a medical doctor. However, I, I do try to analyze things, and, th- and things about this really bother me. For example, they keep adding on every uh, number of people who get infected. And what they're, and, and, and this week there's been an, another uh, huge increase in people, particularly in Texas, in Florida, in Arizona, and even to some degree in South Carolina, the number of people who are getting infected and getting sick. Well, you have that statistic, and that's what they talk about so much. Now, interesting statistic is if you will go back and check the number of deaths in the country, and I'm giving you some perspective as all I'm trying to do. There's a CDC website. You can go there and look at it, and you'll see the deaths from COVID and deaths from all sources, every kind of death, car wreck, murders, cancer, whatever it may be. You will find that in January and February, that death rate was going straight up. And those of you who remember the bell-shaped curve, and then the thing went out and it started down, and it's been going down. And last month, we had the fewest deaths we've had in a long time. Now, nobody ever says that on television. That doesn't sell that doesn't sell very well. Nobody wants good news like that. <laughs> and so you don't hear, you, so you don't get a perspective. Now, I'm wearing my mask because tomorrow, Florence is supposed, we're supposed to wear a mask in public, and I want to I submit myself to those in authority over me, and I want to be a, a good example. And I know it's dangerous. I know healthcare workers have told me some horrible stories of things happening in intensive care units. And and I know this disease is a real disease. And it's, you know, there's all, it it appears in different ways. But it also is a threat to life, particularly if you're like myself in one of those vulnerable age groups or you have some underlying conditions. I have a whole lot of underlying conditions. I don't think they're going to kill me, but I've got underlying conditions. Okay, I thought, you all know that, don't you? You would probably observe those conditions occasionally. But at any rate, we're in a storm. We're in a pandemic. We're in a very chaotic, confusing time. And then if that weren't enough, then we come along with these riots and looting and burning and an attack on our very history itself. Incredibly... uh, unthought-out ideas are taking hold in the country, like getting rid of the police departments, defunding the police. Do you realize, if you read your Bible in Romans chapter 13, the first and primary reason for government is law enforcement, to hold back the evil, to punish the evildoer, the lawbreaker. And a spirit of lawlessness in many quarters has come into America today, and it's very concerning for us, isn't it? 
And so the question is in all of this, we're building our lives. Are they on the sand or are they on the rock? Building on the rock. Now, I read you the parable and gave you the little basic interpretation of it, but I want you to go back to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy in your Bible, chapter 31. I've been reading in my daily Bible reading the book of Deuteronomy. I just finished it, and I've just been so blessed by it. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. The background of Deuteronomy is that Moses and the children of Israel are gathered on the banks of the Jordan River. They are about to cross over. They've been 40 years in the wilderness. They've gone through all these experiences, and now the Lord is ready to open up the rivers or the waters of the River of Jordan, and they're going to be able to pass over into the Holy Land for the very first time in Israel's history. And God said to, to Moses, before I take you home, I want you to gather the people, and I want you to go over the law. I want you to rehearse the law with them. He did that about four times, which tells me you have to repeat things if you want people to get them. And he gave the law and explained the law about four different times before he had finished his course and the Lord called him home. Now, in verse 30 of chapter 31, it says, Moses spake in the ears of all the congregation of Israel the words of this song. And so this chapter 32 is the song of Moses, the song that Moses composed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because it's in our Bible. It's inspired. And Moses sung this song as a teaching tool to the children of Israel. And I go down to verse 4. I can't cover the entire chapter, but I want you to notice these words. Speaking of the Lord, he says in verse 3, ascribe greatness unto God because he is the rock. Now, underline that phrase. He is the rock. God is our rock. That's the way he's presented here in verse 4. Now, if as you read this chapter six times, you're going to see the word rock with a capital letter on it. You see, you'll see the word rock even in other places, but it's not capitalized. What does it mean when it has a capital letter by it? That's a reference to deity. That means it's referring to God. So in verse 4, he says, God is our rock. Then I go from verse 4 to verse 15, and it talks about Jeshurim, which is another word for Israel. And he talks about the nation, and at the end of the verse, he says, Israel forsook God who made him and lightly esteemed God, the rock of his salvation. The sin of Israel is that they lightly esteemed the rock. They didn't think much of the rock. They didn't value the rock, speaking of God. We go to verse 18, of the rock that beget thee, well, you've forgotten who formed you and made you. Don't be unmindful of that. And it speaks again of God as our creator. Don't be unmindful of the God that created you, Israel. Don't forget that. 
And then we go from verse 18 to verse 30. And he says, how should one chase a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight except their rock, except their God had sold them and the Lord had shut them up. In other words, without divine help, you wouldn't be able to have won the mighty military victories that you won except for the help of the rock of God. And then I go to verse number 31, and this is the one I like the most. Their rock is not our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. Even our enemies will tell you that their rock is not our rock. Now, who is he talking about their rock? Well, he's comparing here the pagan nations around them who, worships, who worship idols. He's comparing them to the God of Israel, Almighty God, the God of the Bible, the true God. And so he says, their rock, little, rock, little r, the pagan nations around you, their rock is not at all like our rock, Almighty God. Even our enemies will tell you that our God is different, that our God is superior. So Moses presents here God as our rock. Jesus said, build your life, your foundation on the rock, on the Lord. Question, what are you building your life on? What is the foundation of your life today? What are you depending on to keep your life, yourself, your house in the storms of life? The word rock when it, you picture it, what do you think about? Well, one of the th images in my mind is the insurance company that used to have the picture of the Rock of Gibraltar. And the insurance company wanted to convey to people that they were stable and they were dependable and they were reliable, that they were an institution of character. And so they used the Rock of Gibraltar as their as their logo, if you will, because a rock represents stability. A rock represents permanence. You ever thought you hold a rock in your hand, a real, genuine rock? That rock, some of those rocks, I believe, have been here since creation. You're holding history in your hand just to look at a rock, a plain old rock that you'd pick up out of a riverbed somewhere. And you look at it, and it's so seemingly insignificant, and yet that rock was here when my forefathers were here. That rock was here in the Civil War. That rock was here in the War for Independence. That rock was here when America was in its earliest days, when the Spanish explorers were coming over here. That rock was there in the Middle Ages when Martin Luther was nailing his thesis to the door. That rock was here when Jesus Christ walked on the earth. If there's anything that's permanent, it's a natural rock. But the rock he has in mind here is not a little rock I'd hold in my hand. It's a great outcropping of rock. It's like the rock you could see at Mount Rushmore or Yosemite, a place like that. It's an overwhelming, it's a mountain of rock. And he says about it, well, it's great. Look back in verse number, uh, in verse number three. Ascribe greatness 
to our God. And so Moses begins to describe the character of our rock. And the first thing he says, it's great. How do you describe to a congregation of Bible-believing Christians, how do you describe to them the greatness of God? I can do it. The best thing I can do is to tell you this is how great our God is. You listening to me? Look up here. I don't want you to miss this. You got on those masks, and I can't see much of your expression today. But um, here's the best description I can give you the greatness of God. God sitting alone, solitary, by himself in eternity past when there was nothing in existence but him. He spoke and the universe came into existence. It's pretty great, isn't it? When we sing how great thou art, that's who we're singing about. The God who is a great God, ascribe greatness to the rock. Then if you look in verse 4, the rock is perfect in his work. He makes no mistakes. Verse number 4, his work is perfect. And then you continue through that verse, and his work is just. His ways are judgment, the idea of justice. He's a God of justice. And you continue, and he is a God of truth. Our rock is a rock of truth. He has integrity. He can't lie, the Bible says. God is a God of truth. And then as I continue, it says he is a righteous God. He is right. He always does the right thing. You don't have to worry about God doing wrong. And so, all through this passage, we see descriptions of the rock that we're to build our life upon. That rock, as I said, represents stability, how we need that in our culture. It represents endurance. That rock is a key part of our hymnology in our churches where we sing the great hymns of the faith. And what do we sing? Rock of ages, referring to Jesus Christ, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. We sing, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. We sing, the Lord's our rock, in him we hide a shelter in the time of storm. Right now, in the times we're living, we are looking to the rock. We sing, O rock of ages, hide thou me. And the greatest of our hymns, perhaps of all the hymns many people think, is the hymn of Martin Luther, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And Luther had in mind a stone, granite, limestone fortress whose walls went up higher than the walls of this building. And the, and, it, and the gates shut at night, and the city was protected. The people were safe because of this powerful fortress, and it's made out of rock. It's a bulwark that never will fail us. He is saying that God is our rock. And go down to verse number 31. The second thing I would say to you is that there's no rock like him. He's an incomparable rock, our God is. There's no God other than him. And so in Deuteronomy 32 and 31, 
their rock, the rock of the world, the rock of the pagans, the rocks of the unbelievers, the thing that they're depending upon and counting on for their stability, their endurance, their safety, their security. Their rock is not like our rock. Our rock is absolutely unique. Now, he is comparing here the idol gods of these pagan nations around him to Jehovah God, Almighty God. Let me tell you, of all the things I've said about God so far, I've told you that He is a God of truth. He is a God of, he is a God of righteousness. He is a great and powerful God. I've told you His attributes, some of them. But let me tell you the greatest thing about God. And I want you to get this. You're going to need this in the days in which we live. The greatest thing about our God is that He is in control, that He is in control. You see, the idol gods of the pagans don't control anything. Their image is made out of wood and stone. And people bow down before gods all over the world this morning, the Buddha and all of that kind of thing, but that God has no power. But our God is in control He is in control of absolutely everything. Now, slip down to verse 39. You'll see that. And Moses sung these words, See now that I, referring, he's speaking for God, even I am he, and there is no God with me or but me. There's no other God. There's just one God. And I want you to notice what he says. I have the power to kill and make alive. And I have the power to wound or make sick or injure, and I then have the power to heal. And nobody can be delivered out of my hand if I choose to deal with them. The greatest thing about our God is that He is sovereign. He is in control. Now, things may seem out of control to us. When you watch the news today, you think, my soul, is the sky falling? I want to tell you the sky is not falling. I want to tell you that God is in control. God rules. God reigns. God is our rock today on which we're depending. And I read my Bible, and here's what I find in my Bible, that God controls what? Everything. God controls it all. How many of y'all believe that today? You believe that, that God is in control? Okay, let me tell you what he's in control of. One, he's in control of the weather. I read, now, all of this I got from reading my Bible. God is in control of the weather. He's in control of the wind. He is in control of the rain. He had it rain once for 40 days and nights. That was in South Carolina, I think. He's in control of the snow, Job said. He is in control of the earthquake. He's in control of the storm. He is in control of the hurricane or the cyclone or the tornado. God controls the weather. God is in control of the entire universe, the sun. One day he held it back so Joshua could win a battle. He's in control of the moon. One day he made it dark in the Old Testament time. He is in control of the stars. Job talks about 
the constellations, seeing Pleiades and some of those other constellation figures. And he talks about how God is in control. God is in control of the sea. God is in control of the mountains. He's in control of the rivers. You remember when he sent the plagues to Egypt and how he turned the Nile red and how at other times he allowed floods to come up on the rivers. He's in control of the mountains and the trees that grow on them. He's in control of the grass. And the Bible frequently refers to the grass and the cattle being fed and God in control of it. He is in control of the creatures themselves, the cattle, the horses, the birds. I was thinking again of those plagues in Egypt, and it tells me how much God controls nature, and he controls everything. And it talks about the frogs. I've never thought about it before, but God controls the frogs. God controls the flies. Do you remember he sent a plague of flies into Egypt? God controls the gnats. I'll tell you how great God is. God even controls the no and you swat at them, and you miss them, but God's in control, huh? God is in control of everything. We call that doctrine the sovereignty of God. God is in control of diseases. God controls blindness. And over and over, Jesus is touching the eyes of people and opening their eyes in the Bible. God is in control. A woman came to him, and she had been hemorrhaging blood for many, many years, and no physician could help her. And she simply touched the robe of Jesus Christ, and she was healed. God is in control of the diseases that rack our body, of deafness, of paralysis. And so he said to the man who had been sitting on a mat for all those years, stand up and walk. And the man walked because God controls diseases. I wonder today if we don't need reminded about that because God is in control of COVID-19. God controls that too, as much as we tend not to think about that. God even controls the nations. And recently I read that wonderful passage in Isaiah chapter 40 again, that God looks down from heaven and he sees the nations, including the United States. Yes, I think this is the greatest nation in history, but I don't think it's as great sometimes as we think of ourselves. And God looks down from heaven and he says the nations are like what? A drop in a bucket. And I picture a two-gallon bucket. And there's one drop of water in the bottom of the bucket. And that's how God looks at the United States and England and France and so on across the world. Not so significant in the big scheme of things because God is so great. Our rock is not like other rocks. Our God is unique because he's in control. That makes him unique. God looks down at the nations, and he says, it's like a drop in a bucket. And listen to the next part. He compares the nations to a speck of dust on a scale. The speck of dust doesn't even register on the scale. It has no weight that the scale can pick up or discern. And God looks at the nations who think they're so great, and they flex their muscles Oh, we've got the bomb. We've got the planes. We've got all this. 
You're like a speck of dust in the hands of God. Layman Strauss was a great, great preacher of the last generation. He actually was a preacher's preacher. He taught preachers homiletics and how to preach. And he said, one of the greatest things I've ever heard about the sovereignty and the power of God. Layman Strauss said, and I quote, God does whatever he wants to do. Whenever he wants to do it, he involves whomsoever he wills, and whatever he does is right. Boy, that sums it up to me. Whatever he does is right. People say, well, God has all this power. I mean, he decides to do this. Why did he do that? Why did he allow the virus? Why does he allow this and that and the other thing? I don't understand God, and they question God. See, God always does right. You've got to get that in your mind and fix that if you're going to ever really be able to trust him very well. God always does right. Why does he do right? Because of his overall character. See, God's character is like this. It's not, you just don't say God is sovereign and here's God, but you also have to say that God is holy. And then you say, but not only is God holy, he's also a God of love. And then you say, well, wait a minute, but he's also a God of wisdom and knowledge, and he's also a God of power, and he's also a God of truth. And before long, you have this interlocking character where God is sovereign, but he's not so sovereign that his sovereignty overrules his love. And he's not so loving that his love overwhelms his truth and justice. God, his character is so perfect. That's why I dwelt on it a moment ago. Here's God, and he's a whole. You can't separate him and question him about one thing or the other in his character. That's why we study our Bible. That's why we study theology. That's why we search the Scriptures. We want to find out, what is this God like? And he's made of many different characteristics, his attributes, we call them. And this God does whatever he wants, but he's not going to do wrong because his love and kindness and truth constrain him. He does whatever he wants, whenever he wants. He's the only one who can choose the perfect timing because he's eternal. He sees the end from the beginning. And this same God is the God who involves whoever he wishes. And so, he lets one person do one thing and, one person, and, and another person another thing. It is God's choosing. He ri- raises up one and he puts down another, the Bible says. And so he does whatever he wants to do. He does it whenever he wants to do it. He uses whomever he wants to use. He does it wherever he wants to do it. And whatever he does, he's always right. He's holy. He is God. He is our rock, and our rock is not like their rock. There's no other God like him. And so, you know what what I think about the COVID-19? I think that, um, I think when it comes to that, that he'll stop COVID-19 whenever it served his purpose. And God knows what's happening in Seattle. 
He knows that everybody up there has lost their mind. He knows what's happening in Washington. He knows what's happening in New York City. God knows, and God is sovereign, and God is in control. And if you and I could simply take his place and see it from his perspective, we would understand and we would agree with him 100%. Now, having said all that about our rock, that there's no rock like our rock, I want you to turn with me to three passages right quick, and the first one is 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians in God's Word, verse number 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. Look at it with me, if you will. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and in verse number 7, he talks about people who are asleep because they've been drunk the night before. And he says, I don't want you to be like that. In verse 8, let us who are of the day be sober. Now, the idea of sober there, he's not talking about us not getting drunk, but he said, I want you to be aware. I want you to wake up. I want you to have situational awareness, we call it. I want you to be very, very aware of what's happening in your, in your, in your environment. And today, Christian, wake up. You should be interested in what's happening in our culture, in our country, in the medical realm. I, I see people, they just want to deny everything and live like, oh, everything's going to be okay. I got to go to work. No, wake up, Christian. Be spiritually awake and aware and sensitive. So the first thing he says is be aware, wake up. The second thing he says here is protect your heart. Now, why do I say that? Because he says, put on a breastplate. And so, protect your heart. You see, your heart, the Bible says, is out of it are the issues of life. Out of the heart are the motivations and the desires and the thoughts of everything you have in your life. And you protect your heart by filling it up with what? Look at it right there. Faith. So, you build your faith in His Word. You fill it up with love and you fill it up with the hope of salvation, hope. So you have those three great qualities we read about often in the Scripture, faith, hope, love. You read that in a number of places in the Bible. So God says, wake up, Christian. Be aware of what's happening around you. Secondly, protect your heart, because out of it are the motivations for the desires of your life. Make sure your heart is full of faith and hope and love. And then I want you to continue reading. God has not appointed us to wrath. No, if there's anything in the world we need to remember about God is God wants to bless us. God is good. Now, prophetically, that's talking about the tribulation period. Uh, when, he, when it talks about he has not appointed us to the, go through the tribulation because this book is full of passages prophetic uh, in a prophetic context. But God wants to do you good. God wants to bless His people. It's His nature, His generosity, His love for His people, the way He blesses them. And then I want you to notice the next phrase, He wants to, us to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. And right there in miniature, again, you have the plan of salvation. Salvation is not through your works. 
Salvation is through is obtained through the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, who died for our sins. And then here's what I want you to catch. Whether we live or die, we live with Him. Whether we live or die, we'll be with Him. Now, we don't like to think about physical death, but the worst thing that can happen to a Christian is not to die, I can tell you that. Because if I die physically, I live with Him. Heads I win and tails I win. If I live, praise God. If I go to be with the Lord, praise God. That's the attitude of the Christian. That's the attitude of the Apostle Paul here. The worst thing that can happen to me is not a physical death. The worst thing that could happen to me would be to die physically and not live with him. That would be the real tragedy, wouldn't it? Now, continue with me to the right in your Bible, the book of James. And there's another verse that dovetails with this. James chapter 4, and in verse 13, Go to now, you that say, Today or tomorrow we're going to go to such a city and continue there a year, and we're going to buy and sell and get game. We're going to make a profit. This sounds like a businessman talking. And he says, I'm making my plans. I'm, I'm making my one-year plan now. I'm tom- today or tomorrow, I'm going to Columbia or Charlotte or Charleston or Atlanta, and I'm going to stay there for a year, and I'm going to do business, buy and sell, and I'm going to make a profit. That's the plan. Now, it might be a different kind of plan, but I put it in that context. Now, in the next verse, or pardon me, in verse 15, skip down to verse 15, he ought to say, if the Lord will, I will live and do this or do that. If God wills, I'll go to Columbia or Charleston, and I'll buy and sell, and I'll make my plan. But it depends upon the Lord. It depends upon Him. If God wills. And we've got to, as Christians facing the storms of life, here's what we've got to do. We have got to every day be aware that our life is in God's hands. That if God wills, we will live. So many people right now are absolutely panicked by the virus. I could get it. You could get it. But if God wills, we will live. It's what the verse teaches there, right? Are we going to believe him, ladies and gentlemen? Are we going to believe him or are we going to live in terror and live in fear? I want to live in awareness every day when I get up that it is God who decides if I live or if I die, James 4, 15. I even like the next phrase even better because notice what it says. If the Lord, will say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or do that. <laughs> I really like that phrase. The do this or do that means even the little inconsequential things of life. 
that God, just like he controls the gnats and the flies, God also controls the this or that of life. If the Lord wills, I'll go get my groceries today. If the Lord wills, I'll wash the car. The this and the that's of life, the things that are really not real important in life, but I'm aware that whatever I do, I bring the Lord into it. He decides if we do this or that. Nothing is excluded from this or that. Now, having said that, I really want you to get a phrase, a a, a sentence, because it encapsulates what I've been trying to say. The very same power that spoke the universe into existence, the very same power that determines if we live or die, James 5, the very same power that says I can do this or that, the little tiny small details of life, That same power is the same power that's sustaining my life right now. Now, that's a powerful phrase. The God who spoke the universe into existence, who sees the nations as a drop in a bucket, the God who determines if I'm going to live or die today, if I'm going to do this or that, that same God is sustaining my life right now. And he's going to sustain it according to his will. So I need not live in terror. Go back with me now to the last passage I want to show you. It's in Matthew, Matthew chapter 10. And you'll see that these three passages just come together like a, like a jigsaw puzzle. They, every piece just fits. And in Matthew chapter 10, and in verse number 29, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? a small coin, like a nickel or something. And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your heavenly Father. Even God is in control of the sparrow falling to the ground. And then he says, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, follow with me. In verse 29, he says, God sees and knows everything, even the insignificant act to us of a little sparrow falling to the ground. God knows it. In verse number 30, God knows all about me, not just the sparrow. He knows the very hairs, the number of hairs on my head every detail of life here. And then in verse 31, because of that, that God sees and knows and cares, he says, do not fear. You're of greater value than any sparrow. Now, I began the reading in 29. Go with me up to 28. Fear not them then which kill the body. That's the coronavirus. That's cancer. That's car wrecks. That's violence. Don't fear those who can kill the body, but that's as far as they can go. They cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him. Who is him? That's God. 
That's our rock. That's unlike the other things that people worship in the world. Fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Beside that verse in my Bible, here's what I wrote. If I fear God, I don't need to fear anything else. There's just one fear that a Christian ought to have, and it should not be the virus, and it should not be the conditions in society. It should be God. You see, the fear of the Lord doesn't mean to cringe in His presence, to panic in His presence. The fear of the Lord means that you honor Him so much, you love Him so much, you you seek to please Him to such a degree that you obey Him. The fear of the Lord is always attached to obedience in the Bible. You just don't acknowledge Him and say, yeah, I believe in God and walk out the door and do whatever you want. The fear of the Lord means I honor Him, I respect Him, I seek to please Him. And it, and it motivates, it, 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 it inspires the rest of my life. That's to fear God. And if I fear Him, I don't have to fear anything else because it's up to Him whether I live. It's up to Him whether I do this or that. It's up to Him because He's in control. Our rock is not like their rock. Bow your head with me in prayer, please.